0: A week ago, Wednesday, on January the 19th, uh, President Obama and the White House was getting ready to host a state dinner in honor of the president of China, Hu Jintao. Earlier on that afternoon on Wolf Blitzer and CNN, he had two people, a Democratic strategist and a Republican strategist, who were debating on the rightness of this whole thing, should this man be honored, you know. And so the Democratic strategy said, yes, that was the right and proper thing for the president to do, which you would expect from a Democrat. Uh, the Republican, on the other hand, said, absolutely not, because this man is a leader of a country that uh, imprisons uh, both political and religious opponents. Uh, they even practice torture and other kinds of punishment. He's a totally dishonorable man, and we shouldn't be doing this at all. Well, so far, no surprises. Uh. What I was surprised at was the next statement. The Democratic strategy said, I agree with everything she said, but we have no choice. We need this man. Well, China owns increasing amounts of the US, and they owe a huge debt to them. But it does raise the question, though, doesn't it? That dishonorable people can sometimes be treated as noble when they shouldn't be. A reversal of values. Just imagine if if that network or other networks had the courage to not just let things dangle like that... ...but to actually come out and say, yeah, we're not going to confuse scoundrels and fools with noble people. We want to insist on right-side-up values when it comes to leadership. Well, actually, it shouldn't be a surprise to us. Nothing has changed in 2,800 years. Isaiah dealt with exactly that situation. And in this passage that is before us as we pick up uh, chapter 32... Uh, it has all to do with the issue of leaders and people and what happens to them when they are led in a certain way. And it's extremely timely for us, right? Because uh, as you saw in the back of your uh, bulletin, we had the slate of officers. And only God could time it in such a way that on that day that that list is posted, we are in Isaiah chapter 32, dealing with the issue of leaders. What kind of leaders we need to aspire to be? What kind of effect that will have upon the people? And how we get there from here? And while it may have the most obvious application to those of us who are in um, either um, formal positions of leadership like staff, or elected positions of leadership, like the officers of the three boards. There are vast numbers of your leadership positions. Lay pastors, leaders of small other small groups, youth ministry leaders, children's ministries, women's ministries leaders. So it has wide application. And then, of course, all of us men who are leading our families. Uh, In the New Testament, the home and the church are basically, one is just a subset of the other. So leadership in the home and leadership in the church are, are are to mirror one another. And so, if any of you ever doubted the relevance of a book like Isaiah, it should be dispelled this morning. This whole section from chapter 28 to 35 is later on in Isaiah's history. Remember, he's been, pro- he's been prophesying and preaching over a 50 or 60 year period. So the historical situation keeps changing. But the message is always the same. What is that? If we will not stand firm in faith, we will not stand firm at all. That's the central issue. By now, things have proceeded to the point where it is pretty clear that Israel's strategy of relying on this treaty with uh, Syria is not going to work, and they're about to fall to Assyria, and the only hope for Judah is Egypt, and so their leaders have been running off there, and so Isaiah from chapter 28 on, right up until chapter 35, is hammering away at leadership issues. In chapter 28, verse 1, he is confronting drunken leaders. Basically, the idea is not so much just drinking as much as the fact that they were partying when they ought to be leading their people to repent. We saw that as the quintessential sin of Judah. In chapter 29, verse 1, it is leaders who hide their plans from the Lord. Uh, Sorry, people who are taking refuge in having the right kind of religious ritual. Chapter 29, 15, they are hiding their plans from the Lord. And chapter 30 and chapter 31, they are running off and making alliances with, with the kings and princes of Egypt. The leadership problem in chapter 28 to 31 was described in these words. A drunken leaders who were focusing on the wrong things and gave ungodly advice that rebellious people adopted without consulting God. Now in sharp contrast to that, in chapter 32, we see a description of a different kind of leadership. Behold, a king will reign in righteousness and princes will rule in justice. Each will be like a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry place, like the shade of a great rock in a weary land, then the eyes of those who see will not be closed, and the ears of those who hear will give attention. The heart of the hasty will understand and know, and the tongue of the stammerers will hasten and speak distinctly. The fool will know here it is. the fool will no more be called noble, nor the scoundrel said to be honorable, for the fool speaks folly, and his heart is busy with iniquity to practice ungodliness, to utter error concerning the Lord, to leave the craving of the hungry unsatisfied and to deprive the thirsty of drink. As for the scoundrel, his devices are evil and he plans wicked schemes to run the poor, ruin the poor with lying words, even when the plea of the needy is right. But he who is noble plans noble things and on noble things he stands. He's picturing a day when a different kind of king will be reigning in justice and righteousness and underneath him will be princes and rulers who will be reigning in the same way. And in this section he portrays for us and you can take out your little sermon notes and, uh, and uh, follow me along as you move along so you have a record of what we learned today. He, he gives five powerful metaphors for just and righteous leaders or maybe I should strictly say similes in case there are English teachers here. They are not really metaphors but similes here. Uh, The first thing he calls them, and I'm going to be unpacking these metaphors in a few minutes, but just kind of walk through the text quickly and then we'll unpack it forever. First of all, he said, these these rulers who are working under this king will be like a hiding place from the wind. They will be like a, a shelter from the storm. They will be like streams of water in a dry place. They will be like the shade of a rock. In a, it should be a weary land. I'm sorry, it should be dry land. In a weary land, and there will be noble men standing on noble plants. So that's the description, the fivefold description of these leaders. The effect upon the people is equally startling. For he says this will produce a certain kind of people. First of all, he says they will have eyes to see. You can write down the word perception next to it. They will have ears to listen attentively. Write down the word reception to remember that characteristic. They will have hasty hearts that will understand. and the Hebrew, the word hasty here carries the idea of people who act quickly without pausing to really understand what the situation is before them. Write down the word comprehension next to it. Fourthly, he says, stammering tongues that will speak distinctly. This is communication and taken together in the local context, it is a prophecy that Israel will fulfill her God-appointed mandate to proclaim clearly to the nations the greatness of their God and invite them into that fellowship with them. Because this was exactly the mission on which they failed, to be a witness to the nations. And then fifthly he says they will no longer confuse fools and scoundrels with noble people, write down the word discernment. So if you have leaders who are like hiding places from the wind, shelters from the storm, streams of water in a dry place, the shade of a great rock in a weary land, and noble men who stand on noble promises, it will produce a people with perception, reception, comprehension, communication, and discernment. That's the beautiful picture that Sheila was talking about on one side. What I want to do is to take a few moments to just... uh, Oh, by the way, one other thing. That last section, uh, that they will no longer confuse fools and scoundrels and noble people, that must have been important to Isaiah because he takes another half of those opening verses to describe fools and scoundrels and the difference between them. And one of the things it is important to understand is that what he's really after is the difference between external appearance and what is on the inside. Because you see, the biblical fool was not... Someone who was lacking intellectual capacity. The biblical fool was not an unsuccessful person. One commentator summarized it beautifully. He said, a biblical fool is a strongly negative term, but it has nothing to do with a person's intellectual abilities. Rather, they are people who have consciously rejected God's ways. They may be brilliant and attractive, but they have built their life on a lie and they have dedicated their lives to propagating that lie. The kind of ethics that permeates the Bible is totally foreign to them and the only language they understand is power. That's the biblical fool. And one of the phrases that Isaiah uses is very pertinent. He says they utter error concerning the Lord. Now I'm not a Hebrew scholar but the, uh, one of the study books I saying that phrase occurs only one other place in the Old Testament and gives us the clue to the primary meaning. It is people who come alongside people who are moving in the right direction and then speaking error destabilize them and leave them in a place where they don't know what to do they create uncertainty by their teaching the lie on which they have built their own lives they propagate it and he says we need to know the difference and people will become people of discernment so this is the picture that Isaiah is painting what does it say to you and me today well, we've come a long way since Isaiah's time. And this king that he has been speaking about, this king who will reign in righteousness and justice, we know it's none other than the Messiah. Several times in the first 35 to 28 chapters, we've encountered this prophecy of this end times. And we know that Jesus has come. What Isaiah didn't know that clearly, as many of the Old Testament prophets didn't, was that this coming was going to be in two major stages. That he was going to first come the way he did, We celebrated that during Advent. He lived his life here on earth. He died on the cross. He rose again. He's ascended to the right hand of God the Father. And he is now ruling. According to the book of Revelation, he's exalted to the right hand of the majesty on high. And we sang about him as prophet and as priest and as king. That's not something in the future. Jesus is reigning today. And the extent of that kingdom has gone way beyond the time of Isaiah when it looked almost incredible. That All that stuff in green was basically the influence of Christianity by the end of the first century. And the spot in the circle was Assyria, the Assyrian Empire at the time of Isaiah. So the predictions would have looked so incredible uh, at that time. And so we are long past that time when a significant amount of Isaiah's prophecies have already come true. Which gives us the confidence that... Everything else is going to happen too. The king will reign one day in righteousness and justice. But we are kind of in between those situations. We are much further along than Isaiah, but we are not quite there yet. And so these verses are speaking today to the continual importance of leaders who will become these kinds of leaders. And I took quite a bit of time in preparing this message to just think and pray about how these similes might work for us today. And I was just gripped. I felt that this was the heart of the message. What kind of leaders do we need to be? And there are these beautiful... Now, the beautiful thing about images in Scripture is that as we meditate on them, there isn't one right answer. It's however the Spirit moves within your heart. So, I'm not giving these to you as uh, ex-cathedra statements of the only way to interpret them. But this is what came to my mind and I was excited enough by it and I hope it produces that same kind of feeling in you. First of all, hiding place from the wind. What does that speak to me of? When I, I'm sure the wind in Isaiah's place, Middle East, was a hot wind. Where I live, I don't like the cold winds. I can handle most of the winter, you know. I've been in Vancouver the past week and it was rainy and damp, but you didn't have to shovel anything. and You didn't slip over it either. I would take that any day over what we have here. But I can still handle most of this, except when I step out of the house and that wind is blowing. That's when I get irritated and upset at having to live here. It gets right through to you, that cold wind. It's a good picture sometimes of the kind of life people end up living. Sometimes the circumstances of life conspire to just put a chill around their hearts. They've lost the capacity to respond to the things of God. There's not much interest left anymore in ministry or in life. It's like somebody has come and poured a whole bunch of cold, ice cold water over their aspirations and their dreams. Life can do that to some people. Well, leaders who are like a hiding place in the wind then speak to me of people who are warm, who who provide warmth. You know, we use the word warm welcome. These are welcoming leaders. Welcome leaders who provide warmth by listening a little bit enough to at least identify a little bit with the chill in the heart of the people. And then to somehow share with them a little bit of the passion that is still in their heart. You can't do it as a human being the only way I know how to do that is to take them to Jesus. He's the only one who can warm their hearts. He's the only one who can bring passion to their hearts. But what a beautiful calling for leaders to provide a hiding place for people whose hearts have become cold and chilled to say, look, I, I, I will listen to you. I will warm your heart. I will take you to the one who can reignite passion within your heart once again. That's one picture that came to my mind. The second picture is that of a shelter from the storm. Now, What kind of life can be described by a storm? I thought of the way, the phrase that we use, a perfect storm. A perfect storm is when several things all line up to create chaos. Some people's lives are like that. Sometimes so many things go wrong at the same time that they lose perspective. They get confused. They don't know what to do. I remember one morning outside after the 9 o'clock service, praying with a woman who had simultaneously marriage problems, parenting problems, health problems, and financial problems. The only thing that was missing was work problems. And that life was in a storm. And in a storm, it's not so much warmth and passion they need as much as wisdom. Because you see, they've lost a sense of meaning in the chaos of their lives. Leaders who are like a shelter in the storm are able to speak some words of wisdom into those perplexing situations. I remember Eugene Peterson many years ago talking about how the Bible has an amazing beginning in the book of Genesis. And a glorious ending in Revelation and everything in between is messy. And he said, pastors, and I say by extension leaders, are called to live with people in the messy middle and insist on a meaningful beginning and a glorious ending. Somehow enable them to see connections between where they are and the big story. Because that's what they're missing. Does my life, this chaotic life that is in a storm right now, does it have any meaning? Does it make any sense? And by the way, the only way we're going to be able to do that, leaders, is if we have a good enough sense of the big story. Because you see, every individual story is part of that big story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. It's the only story that gives meaning. The only way we can ever make sense of the difficult moments in our life is to realize that it's not just about this eighty years or seventy years. It is about a eternity to eternity story, and we've had the privilege of being part of that story somehow. Then then I thought of streams of water in a dry place. What's life like when it's dry? Uh, We have plants in our house, and I don't have a green thumb, and I most of the time forget to water these things. And until Sham reminds me, mostly she does it, but sometimes she'll remind me. And then I take a look at this, and you see the soil all completely dry and cracked, and then the plant's kind of like this, you know, with no life in it at all, and forget about the flowers, right? But the miracle, the miracle is what happens within 8 to 12 hours after I put water in it. The soil's nice and dark. The stalk is absolutely straight. The leaves are green. And in a couple of weeks, you can actually see the flowers. That's water in a dry place. And I thought, what another beautiful picture of leaders to come alongside people whose lives... Because when their people are dry, they've lost a sense of potential in their lives. There's no vitality. They've stopped seeing that they can bear fruit that will bring pleasure to other people's lives. And it's the call of a leader... To be able to observe that potential and to come alongside of them and repaint that picture within their hearts of what their lives can become like. That's how you become like water in a dry place to people. So this time it is not so much wisdom, but it is encouragement. Warmth and passion for cold hearts. Wisdom for perplexed hearts in a storm. Encouragement for hearts, dry hearts that have lost their passion. And then he talks about the shade of a great rock in a weary land. (laughs) Last summer when Sham and I went to Jordan to speak there, the one part of the trip involved uh, first driving down to Aqaba on the, Jordan, on the coast of Jordan and then uh, getting to a ferry to go from there uh, across the, the Red Sea to the, where we had the meetings. It was 47 degrees centigrade in Aqaba that day. And because it was Ramadan, you couldn't drink water outside in a public place. And the bus couldn't come close enough to the ferry, so I was lugging these two heavy, heavy suitcases... On these cobblestone roads that were up on an incline in 47 degree heat. You know, I, was in a, I, I didn't want to keep going. But I also couldn't dare to stop. It was too hot. What do you do when you don't have strength to keep going but cannot stop? That's what that's like. What I was looking for was shade. <laughs> Even a little lamppost, if I could put one leg behind the shade was enough. Just, I just wanted a down thing long enough. I wanted shade more than anything else. And I began thinking about that. Life is like that sometimes for people. They're exposed. Their strength is gone. They cannot go on, but they dare not stop. They want a safe place. Leaders who are like a shade of a great rock in a weary land provide a safe place of acceptance, a place where they say, you can down tools, you can acknowledge the battle that is in your heart, and we will carry that weight for a few moments. And these are four beautiful pictures, four tender pictures of leaders, wherever we might be. To come into the lives of people whose lives can be described by a cold wind and by a perfect storm and a dry place and weary land, that is heat. But balancing these four tender images is one image on the other side, because there are also noble men standing on noble plans. And that speaks to me of truth. Remember one of the characteristics of the scoundrels and the fools, these intelligent fools, was to destabilize people by uttering error about the Lord. By coming alongside people who were going in the right direction and creating so much doubt in their lives that their lives were stabilized. Noble men and noble women counter that. There is a time and a place for tender leaders to stand up and say, thus says the Lord. There is a time and a place for leaders to speak the truth even into lives and situations that are marked by these kinds of difficult circumstances for us to make grand affirmations of scripture even as we are providing warmth and welcome and passion and wisdom and encouragement and acceptance and safety we need to say this is what the Bible says. This is what the word of God says. We don't spread uncertainty but we spread certainty in certain things. Four tender images, one necessary image on the other side working together. What a beautiful picture of leadership that we can aspire to. Even as we wait for that day when the king will reign in perfect justice and righteousness. Now the motivation for us, my fellow leaders, is what it will do to the people. Because he said, this is what, then then the eyes will see, then our people that we lead in all these levels of leadership, from the home, to the small group, to the church, will become people of perception and reception and comprehension and communication and discernment. By the way, it also implies that for you as people, this is a call, that you want to become these kinds of people. And you want leaders who will help you become these kinds of people. Leaders who will be tender like these four images, but leaders who will also give you certainty and the grand affirmations of scripture and speak truth into your lives as well so that you can become people like this. Because you see, we face the same danger in our society of calling fools and scoundrels noble. One of the ways in which it happens, not the only way, is we need money to run enterprises, large churches like this, right? Or small ones for that matter. Salaries have to be paid, bills have to be paid, ministries cost money and sometimes we can make the mistake of thinking that people who have money and power are noble people and then we get beholden to them and then we are afraid to speak the truth to them lest we offend them these are some of the ways we can get this error into, our church, into churches if we are not careful that's why we need a healthy dose of a book like James that speaks bluntly to us and says hey when you are all gathered together for worship and a rich man shows up here don't make a poor man sit on the door while you give him the best seat he said Treat everybody without partiality in exactly the same way. So we need to be careful about that. So you need to know, it's good that on this day, you have a picture of the kind of leaders that Jesus wants to rule underneath him in anticipation of that day when we will rule in justice and righteousness perfectly with the goal of producing these kind of people. And for you as a people to say, these are the kind of people that we want to become. We don't want to be coddled. We don't want to be just given a little bromide to get on with life for one more day. No, yeah, we need warmth. We need welcome. We need encouragement. We need passion. uh, We need the truth as well. So please lead us that way. So now the question becomes, how do we get there? We're not there, right? I can't look at a passage like that and not say, oh my goodness, Lord, I need you. So many areas in which I need to grow. And I'm sure you as a people say that too. Well, that was exactly the situation in Isaiah's time too. Their leaders were hopeless, you know, because we saw them. They were drunken leaders, they were insensitive leaders, they were hiding behind ritual. Uh, And so the next section deals understandably with a call to repentance because of what we are not in the light of what we have to become. And uh, women don't get upset with these words. Give me a few moments to explain it to you, okay? But first I'm going to read it. (laughs) Rise up, you women who are at ease. Hear my voice. You complacent daughters, give ear to my speech. In little more than a year you will shudder, you complacent women. For the grape harvest fails, the fruit harvest will not come. Tremble, you women who are at ease. Shudder, you complacent ones. Strip and make yourselves bare and the sackcloth round your waist. Beat your breasts for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful wine. For the soil of my people, growing up in thorns and briars. Yes, for all the joyous houses in the exultant city. For the palaces forsaken, the populous city deserted. The hill and the watchtower will become dense forever. A joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks. Well, he's not picking on the women, he's just getting to them. That's all, he's finished with the men. The men are in the royal courts, busy making alliances with Egypt, wringing their hands over the problem of Assyria, even though God had told them, if you trust me, I will take care of it. So they were busy trusting in human alliance. Back home, as it were, the women were much more concerned about the fact that they'd had a wonderful harvest. Things were looking good. Bargains to be had in the, in the marketplace. So that was their focus. The men were happy in the political arena and the women were happy in the domestic arena. Things were looking good. And the word that comes up over and over again is complacency. Complacent, complacent, complacent. Three times complacent, two times security. That was the issue. Everybody was feeling good about situations. But they were not trusting God. The complacence came from the visible good harvest and the complacence came from the supposed help that Egypt was supposed to give. And so in that context he's calling for a deep... All, that, all those words about uh, stripping, making yourself bare, tying sackcloth around your waist, beating your breast is a call to repent deeply. This is not a superficial issue. The issue of complacence and misplaced trust Which leads to the wrong kind of security. That's why it's relevant for you and me today. So let's wind the clock forward in 2800 years. We're not in these kind of political situations. But we're in the same danger of becoming complacent. Because we live in a good country. I mean it's running on the fumes of its Judeo-Christian heritage. But we don't know that. Have a reasonably stable government. Yeah, if Black Quebec makes a few... ...threats once in a while, but the government is fairly stable. Our banking system is considered one of the best in the world... ...with stock markets doing well. We have a good healthcare system. We don't have to worry about all the shenanigans... ...going south, south of the border on healthcare. Reasonably low inflation and low unemployment... ...compared to the rest of the world. We don't have the kind of chaos in Egypt and Tunisia... ...and, and Yemen and all those places that are happening. Just see the pictures in the front pages... It's our good harvest. It's a good harvest season for us. And so we can become complacent. Spiritually we're doing well. This is a successful church. Measured by most measures of success. Not necessarily by God's. I'm not denying God's work. I I'm Don't get me wrong. I'm just delighted and happy. But we can become complacent in the wrong things. Our finances are doing well. You'll hear about that in our annual meeting. Because of your faithfulness. We've got good leaders, you know. We have a people that are wanting to grow. You're here, you're eager. The relevance of the call to repentance is still the same because we are vulnerable to the same kind of problems. Complacence and security in the wrong things and not in God. We live in a society where the values are continually portrayed as upside down. Where fools and scoundrels are being called noble all around us. Where there's a continual reversal of those values. There are intelligent people who are spreading error that destabilizes people. The modern day fools and scoundrels. We have a long distance to go in spreading the kingdom of God. We are faced with these beautiful portraits of the kind of leadership we need to have and the kind of people that we need to become. And we say, well, we have a long way to go. And so repentance is relevant for us. And you might say, but just a minute though, uh, didn't we already repent at solemn assembly? Yeah, Yes, we did. Yes, we did. But Isaiah 32 coming so shortly after that reminds us of something very important, that what began at solemn assembly must become a continual lifestyle. Wasn't that the message on Friday night from God? this is a year, a year of jubilee where freedom is conditioned on one very important thing. On continuing that vulnerability and that humility. Breaking the power of pride and laziness and lukewarmness in our lives. Gordon MacDonald talks about what this repentant lifestyle is really like. He says, to live in a constant state of repentance is to acknowledge that the heart is always ready to drift into wrong directions. And must constantly be jerked back under control. This is not a call to a morbid kind of introspection that is always on a sin search, putting ourselves down. That's not what he's talking about. But it is an honest recognition that the inward part of us is inclined towards rebellion and disobedience. So we don't go on a sin search, we don't go to find things wrong with us, but that we can leave to the Holy Spirit. But when he shows us, either through a sermon like this, or the passage in Isaiah, or in a small group study, when he begins to show those glimpses in our heart, When pride rears its ugly head again. Then we acknowledge it. We don't defend it. We acknowledge it before God. And we humble ourselves before God and before one another. That's a a repentant lifestyle. Well, last week when I was away in Vancouver, we had a regional district meeting here and some of our staff were there. I wasn't there, obviously, but apparently our district superintendent was speaking to the pastors and he was talking about the issue of choosing leaders. And apparently he said this. I don't think I've ever heard a DS say that. He says, do not choose leaders who don't know how to repent. Do not choose leaders who don't know how to repent. I didn't know he was going to say that and he didn't know I was going to be preaching from Isaiah 32. So leaders, we need to be the kind of people that are continually willing to repent whenever God shows us there's something in our hearts that need repentance. And our people need to see us like that. And people, you, how far away are you from being a people consistently of perception and reception and communication and comprehension and discernment? Do you not then need to join the leaders in this kind of a repentant lifestyle? Now it's also important for us to remember why God calls us to repent. It is not, as I've told you many times, because He loves to see children groveling in the dust. Because He has some sense of ego that needs to be stroked. That's often why human beings like to see other people grovel. Because of a deficiency in their own life. God has no deficiencies. He has no need like that. His glory is unsullied by our rebellion or by our obedience. His glory is undiminished by our worship or by our rebellion. He has no need to exalt himself by making us feel low. God calls us to repent because it is a necessary precursor. for the, This is how you usher in the kingdom of righteousness and of justice. And so the ta- passage goes on. So that's the second thing you remember. The passage goes on in verses 15 to 18. So do this, do this, he says, beat your breasts, repent deeply until, until the spirit is poured out upon us from on high and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness and righteousness abide in the fruitful field. And the effect of righteousness will be peace and the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. My people will abide in a peaceful habitation in secure dwellings and in quiet resting places. So, first of all, what began at solemn assembly must become a repentant, continued life silence. Why? Because repentance prays the way for revival that's what God is after the kind of condition and a place in which the spirit of God can come upon us and justice and righteousness can rule and this text that is before us describes for us the effect of righteousness look what it says the picture first of all he said the wilderness or the desert becomes a fruitful field and that fruitful field will be so extensive it becomes like a forest And and to drive home the fact that this is not primarily agricultural, although in that society it would be. He talks about its effect on the people. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness and righteousness abide in the fruitful field. Exactly what verse 1 was talking about. Behold, a king will reign in justice and righteousness. So repentance is the way by which we get to the point where the spirit of God is poured out upon us. That that kingdom of righteousness and justice can increasingly become characteristic of us people. And then he explained the effect of righteousness. The effect of righteousness will be what? Look at peace, quietness, trust, security, and rest. And one of the most interesting connections between this and their preceding work is found linguistically. The word translated trust is exactly the same word as complacence earlier on. Isn't that interesting? The two look very similar on the outside. Everything depends on the source or the object. They were... Challenge for their complacency that came as a result of trust in human skills and alliances. The spirit produces something that looks the same on the outside but is very different because the source is trust in God produced by the Holy Spirit. That's the contrast here. Complacency and security because you're now trusting in Egypt and they're going to take care of you. Or quietness, trust because righteousness and justice. As a result of the work of the Spirit is characterizing our lives. Well let's fast forward again to 2011. Much has happened since Isaiah said until the Spirit is poured out. Because it did happen 800 years after he wrote it. In a little upper room in Jerusalem. Where the Holy Spirit was poured out in a way that was unusual for the first time ever. Unknown throughout the whole Old Testament. Where he came in an abiding sense. Not upon special people for a special period of time. Like it happened. But he came upon ordinary people. 120 people. And then 3000 people. Launching exactly this mini rule of righteousness and justice. Which is really what the book of Acts is all about. The spreading of the kingdom of God. So that within 100 years. That whole area that I showed you earlier. Had come under the influence of that kingdom of righteousness and justice. But just like in the case of the rule of the king, because ultimate justice and righteousness hasn't come, we still need to keep on praying for the spirit of God to be poured out upon us. Pentecost needs to continue to happen over and over again. And it has, throughout church history, the spirit has been poured out in what are known as those great awakenings. And it has always been preceded by people repenting, repenting deeply. And that repentance has paved the way for revival. And every revival has produced a rule of justice and righteousness. Not only has there been mission in the sense of the salvation of lost people, missions of mercy have also been launched in times of revival. Many of the great uh, mercy movements, Salvation Army and other things like that were all born out of these evangelical awakenings. And you have a little picture of what justice and righteousness might look like I could have gone to any one of these revivals, but I just chose the Welsh Revival because I have most of that in my head here. I didn't have time to look up the details for the other ones. Some of the things that happened in 1905 in Wales because of the Welsh Revival. They had to shut down all the pubs because nobody was going there. The jails were empty, so the police had no work to do at all. And one of the most amusing things was the coal miners couldn't produce as much coal as they were before. You know why? Because the horses stopped moving. You know why the horses stopped moving? Because the miners stopped cursing. And the horses only knew how to move in response to curses. And because the people had been so completely changed, they stopped cursing and the horses wouldn't move. And this that's justice and righteousness. Every church was full in Wales every day for eighteen months. Just think. This morning as I was thinking about it, I said, Lord, what would it be like if just in our city every church was full every night for eighteen months in a row? That's right, justice and righteousness. That's what motivates us to repentance. To keep on praying until the spirit is poured out. Now, I don't know. Will something big happen within our lifetime? I have no idea at all. But I'll tell you what. God gave me another picture. Uh, we spent our last sabbatical, as you know, in California. And one of the big pro- concerns there always is the, the big one. The big earthquake. You know, When is that going to happen? I don't know. But there's a lot of little ones that keep happening. We get little precursors here and there. Little rumblings. 5.5, 6.5, yeah, 8, 9. We don't know what's going to happen. And and the Lord basically the picture that I had was, Sundhi, you don't know whether you and Raxel will ever experience the big one. Another big evangelical awakening. But I tell you, if we keep repenting, if we keep aspiring after becoming these kinds of leaders and these kinds of people, if we keep maintaining a repentant lifestyle, if we increasingly become humble, broken people, we can expect many small ones at least, you know. I want at least the small ones. (laughs) And maybe they'll coalesce into the big ones. I can't guarantee the big one in our lifetime, but I think we've already seen enough of the small ones. So, do you think Isaiah is relevant for our lives? (laughs) I want to take a few moments to pray. I said I want to do the pastoral prayer um, differently. Uh, This whole thing came to my mind this morning as I was praying, so I'm just having to trust God, uh, because it's all about standing firm in faith, isn't it? I described to you in these metaphors, or suggested, Four, five kinds of life that can become difficult. And Sheila earlier on talked about the various circumstances we had come from. And I, I'm going to recap them and I want you to think right now. If any of you say, yeah, that's my life. That's my life right now. Some of you say it's like a cold wind. I've lost passion. My heart is cold. It's not able to respond the way I would like it. Some of you say yes to that. Others might say, no, my life is like a storm. Many things have gone wrong at the same time and I'm losing perspective and having a hard time believing that it's connected to something meaningful. Yet others are saying, I'm like the plant that has no no water in it. I've lost the sense of the potential that I can have for the kingdom and vitality is gone. A fourth group might be saying, I'm like that heat that you talked about. I'm weary of fighting battles. I just want to lay down my load for a while, but I don't know how to do it. I've got to keep moving, but I don't want to keep moving. And then there's the fifth group that's saying, you know what, I've been destabilized by a lot of error and I'm confused. I just need something right spoken into my life. If any one of those five things describe where you are today, will you stand up please and then we can pray for you. And because you're all going to stand up, no one knows which one you're in. So if any one of those five circumstances of life describe you, just stand up where you are. Just look all around, folks. This is our life. This is our life. The rest of you who are not standing up right now, God's given you that freedom to be able to minister to people around you. And so, I would like you to reach out if one of these people stand up and reach out to one of these people I'll you just lay your hands on them if you want and you be the ministers in the hands of the gospel and i'm going to pray and lead us in prayer for these of you thank you for trusting us with what your life is like right now and we are going to pray the prayer. And you know the other passage that I read this morning? God is so good, in you know, order to reinforce things. No sooner had this idea come to my mind in my prayers that I then turned to my scripture reading for today. And it was Mark chapter 2 where the friends broke the wall and laid the paralyzed person before. And Jesus said, I've seen their faith and you are whole. And so that's what we're doing today. We're just taking you before Jesus. We're just laying you at the feet of Jesus. So let me pray. Lord Jesus, I am so thankful for the incredible privilege that you've given to us however imperfectly we lead in justice and righteousness what a noble calling jesus thank you that we are thank you that you don't give us little goals you give us goals that are so big that we have to cry out to you for help we have to cry out for the holy spirit of god and i thank you for every person who has stood up here this morning lord this is the life that characterizes people today and god we are not sufficient But will you look upon these outstretched arms? Our arms that are outstretched are a confession of our powerlessness, Father. Because the other arm is reaching out to you. And Jesus, we are like the friends of the paralytic who are raising these people, laying them at your feet. And will you look upon our hearts of faith and will you say to them, you are whole. So God, I pray today that you will for those whose life is ice cold they will experience even now the beginnings of warmth and welcome into their lives. For those who have lost perspective because, that, because life is a storm, Lord Jesus, I pray that wisdom will begin to come into their hearts. Thou art the living truth, all wisdom dwells in thee. Thou source of every skill, eternal verity. Thou great I am, in thee we rest true answer to our every quest. Thou only art true life, to know thee is to live the more abundant life that earth can never give. O risen Lord, we live in thee and thou in us eternally. For those whose lives are dried up, O God, today I pray there will be a revisioning of the potential. I sanctify them. I pronounce them in Jesus' name. Useful vessels made of gold, silver and precious stones. Fit for the master's use, Father. Equipped with gifts that you have given to them. And I pray, Father, that, that the great Thaw will begin to unlock that in their heart. That their eyes will be filled with faith to believe that they are able and made to have an impact and fruitfulness in the kingdom. And be a blessing to this church, to this body. And Father, for those who are weary of fighting a battle, who are just feeling the heat everywhere, want to stop but cannot afford to, will you tower over them like a huge shade, Father? May they find in this place a community of acceptance, a community of vulnerability, so they can say, this is how I'm fighting and I'm not winning very well. That we might then lift them up, Father, and we might speak the strong name of Jesus. You said strength will rise as we wait upon the Lord. And I pray that even now, Father, strength will be rising up from the bottom of their toes all the way up, Father, to their head. And for those who have become destabilized by clever people propagating errors and lies, O God, I pray that Isaiah himself would have come like a thundering voice that says, Thus says the Lord, this is the way, walk in it. Did you not promise through Isaiah when the Lord longs to be gracious to you? And when you move to the left or to the right, you will hear a still small voice behind you saying, This is the way, walk in it. May that still small voice drown out every other competing lying voice from modern day fools and scoundrels, Father. Instead, I pray that noble men, and who more noble than you, Jesus, will speak truth into their lives at this time. And for us who are called to be leaders, O oh God, we humble ourselves before these are people. We lament our own inadequacies, we lament our own inabilities to be a hiding place from the wind, to be a shelter from the storm, to be like water on dry ground, to be like that great shade and sometimes our refusal to speak the truth so we join ourselves with them and pray for a fresh anointing and infusion outpouring of the spirit of God upon leaders and people that they might and we together might with them become a people of perception and reception and comprehension And communicating clearly the glories of Jesus to a world that has yet to hear about him. And a people of discernment, Father, who will never confuse fools and scoundrels with noble people. In Jesus' name. Amen. Every day we are subject in the newspapers to the barrage of a world that is full of injustice and unrighteousness. And it's very easy for our spirits to spiral downward and sink into a hole of skepticism. So I just want to bless you in those moments that the exact opposite will happen in your life, that faith will well up within your hearts and it will be a reminder to you of Isaiah's promise that there is a king coming who will reign in justice and righteousness. May you behold the king, as Lisa reminded us in our prayer time, and may faith well up within your heart and may you engage yourself in this world of injustice and unrighteousness To become those little islands of justice, righteousness and peace in anticipation and in foretaste of that kingdom to come. Go in Jesus' name.